Remember, for it to be a forward pass, it's got to go forward. Fitzgerald in the steal of territory. 30, 20, 10. Arizona has the lead. It's all the non-believers. How did that? It's all the non-believers. Especially you, Tom Jackson. Anybody can be beat. He's got something. He's got it. He's got it. 20, 10. He's got it. End zone. Touchdown, Titans. It's a miracle. Tennessee has pulled a miracle. He wants to get in a fight. You can't do that. The quarterback, you can't fight. All right, time for us to uh, talk NFL here on the Off the Ball NFL podcast. As ever, I'm delighted to say that we've got uh, Kian Fahey at Kian AF on Twitter from Football Guys and Sam Monson at, uh, from Pro Football Focus at PFF underscore Sam. Gentlemen, you're both very welcome. Um, Sam, just off air, there we were chatting about the fact that you've been uh, spending a little bit of time with the Lions, the Detroit Lions O-line and um, the, the train wreck that that is, to put it quite politely. Yeah, just, well, anytime you have a game that goes so badly, three people get fired at the end of it, you, it tells you really all you need to know about how it went. Um, it was an interesting kind of story because the headline is that, you know, the Lions allowed Matthew Stafford to get sacked seven times. But when we first reviewed or when we first graded the game, we didn't have any of those sacks assigned to an offensive lineman. You know, normally offensive linemen get beaten, their guy gets a sack, and that's it's pretty an easy story. But we didn't have any of them charged. They were all unblocked of some description or other, which meant that there was something more going on there. It was, you know, protection breakdown. It was either Matthew Stafford screwing up the protection calls or it was coaching issues that just wasn't getting them in the right protection. So, you know, I went through the sacks uh, play by play and the Vikings did some very creative stuff with the blitz. They did some really clever things to, to really stress out the Lions protections, but the Lions did some really dumb things themselves, the kind of stuff where you're on about the fourth sack through and you're saying, yeah, I can see why people lost their jobs at the end of this. They're, they're running stuff that already hasn't worked twice and they're, they're giving it another shot and it's just the same result over and over again. So how much of it actually falls on uh, Matthew Stafford for not realising what the hell's going on and then walking over and saying, why aren't you stopping this? Or does any of it, is it wrong to blame Stafford when it is supposed to be a single individual's job to identify the blitzes that are coming against them. So there's so many layers to this because Joe Lombardi posted a video on the Detroit Lions website before this game, essentially breaking down what the Vikings were about to do to them um, and then somehow managed to contrive entirely to fail to stop it. Um, and he's the, the offensive coordinator that just got fired. And so he knew what was coming. It wasn't like this was a surprise to them. Um, and so we started going into some of these Vikings blitzes and drawing up a playlist of who played them well, who picked them up well. And the Lions were actually on there earlier in the season with different types of blitzes from different teams. They'd actually been picking stuff up pretty well. So, But it didn't look like in this game that Matthew Stafford could change anything at the line. He certainly didn't ever look like he was changing things. And if you look earlier in the year, you'll find games where he's up doing the Peyton Manning stuff at the line of scrimmage, changing a lot, making calls, all this kind of stuff. So... 
maybe some at some point in the season he screwed something up in a major way and they took off took that off his plate, took away the responsibility, or maybe things were going so badly for the Lions earlier this year that they tried to, to simplify the offense and take that sort of responsibility away from him and try and make things easier for him. You know, teams have done that in the past. I know it's happened to RG3 in Washington that didn't go well. Yeah. But when you do that, you do make it easier for them. You do simplify some things. But then you end up with plays like happened in, in this game where you can tell from the way you're lining up that you can't pick up what they're about to send at you. But you don't have the ability to change it. You, you know, I mean, there was one play in particular. Eric Hendricks got a sack straight up the A-gap. The Vikings were showing this, and the Lions knew they couldn't pick that, that up and stop it. And yet Stafford had to run this play-action pass away from the line of scrimmage. And it looked like he knew it was coming and was literally just trying to outrun the linebacker that was chasing him down in this fake. Now, even if he can't change things at the line, he's got to call a timeout and try and get out of that. But it was just a, a you know a horrible case study in bad fundamental football for the Lions. Yeah, because uh, it looked like it was starting off quite well for them in the game against the Vikings last week. And then obviously the Vikings started to do that stuff and get in control of the game and they come from behind and they win that one and they go to four and two and they're up against the Bears this week. Um, are they playoff contenders at this point, Keen? I think they are, but what you're scared of, it's kind of a similar thing and we're suddenly becoming an offensive line podcast, but I think you're, what you're scared of there is still the Vikings offensive line, which to me still doesn't look very good. You're, you're getting good play from Bridgewater. I don't think he's been great. He's been solid this year. You're getting Stefan Diggs emerging, who's looked, looked very good the last couple of weeks at receiver and something they've really needed. And Adrian Peterson's been fine. He hasn't been great. He hasn't been terrible. He was terrible in week one, but after that, he's looked solid. He's, he hasn't looked at the special back he once was, but he's been good enough. I think they're going to benefit from playing in the Detroit Lions and Chicago Bears division. They played the Bears this weekend, and that should be another victory, really. And I think it's largely because of how good the defense is rather than how good the offense is, because the offense is just so handicapped by a lack of offensive line talent. They're, they, they had a bad offensive line entering the year, and they're missing their two most talented linemen in Phil Lodeholt and John Sullivan at centre and right tackle so that's going to handicap them in terms of how good they can be when they get to the playoffs I think but they will have a chance of getting there simply because of the division they're in yeah, and yeah. the schedule isn't that bad overall yeah speaking of um, the division the, the Packers at the Broncos this week somebody was suggesting during the week that uh, and this might be the first time that Peyton Manning has been uh, a home underdog since um, junior high school but uh, lo and behold the 6-0 and Packers are going to mile high and they are favourites against the 6-0 and Broncos um, and yeah I don't know you kind of you know anytime that an amazing offence meets an amazing defence the defence tends to win over the, the the course of history that tends to be the case Keen. Um what's going to happen this week? Well yeah you, you do tend to think that but it's not like the Packers have a terrible defence their defence isn't great but it should be good enough and with the way Manning's playing Manning has is, is been kind of bizarre because you saw I think was it last week or the week before where he played quite poorly, and then he hit that strike to Emmanuel Sanders on the field at the, at the moment they most desperately needed to play. And he did that against the Chiefs as well. So he's kind of turning it on when he needs to turn it on. But even though it doesn't really look like that because it looks like he's struggling the whole time. So you, you kind of look at them and you don't really know what to expect at this point. You know the defense is going to be good, but is, it's a matter of is the offense going to be good enough? I think again, against the Packers, Aaron Rodgers should be able to do pretty well against the defense. Your only, your only question mark is... How do they get get receivers open? How do they get production from their receivers? You're going to look to a guy like James Jones who's going to have to play well against the keep to leave. 
Yeah. Sam, is there any danger that we're actually overrating the Packers because they have the best quarterback? And that I kind of sound stupid and a little bit counterintuitive, but the point is that the rest of the team are okay. They've the, the injuries are starting to tell. Their amazing running back is not playing amazingly well at the moment. There's been question marks about the defense over the last couple of years. And that ultimately, it's Aaron Rodgers that has them at 6-0, and not the rest of the roster. Uh, a little bit. I mean, I think the defense is good. I think that's a pretty decent unit. I'm still not wild on some of the stuff they run, and they've, they've definitely got some weaknesses there. But I think that's a good defense overall. Eddie Lacy, if he doesn't come out of the funk he's in, and I, I honestly don't know what it is. You know, the, the whole Eddie Lacy weight thing has resurfaced again this week, trying to explain exactly why it is that we're not seeing the guy we're used to seeing. But I think that's big. The the impact Eddie Lacy has on that offense when he's at his best is, is really transformative. Aaron Rodgers will make any offense look good, but that Green Bay offense has always looked at its best when Eddie Lacy's there. And it's it's been in the past, even when it isn't Lacy, they've had the odd couple of games from uh, from James Starks or from a couple of other running backs before. But Eddie Lacy is the guy that can do that consistently week to week. And for whatever reason, he hasn't been at the moment. And I think eventually that is going to catch up to them. It just felt like um, there were most of the games that they've won have been relatively close games. Like they, they beat the, the Niners in the second half of that game a couple of weeks ago, but they actually kept a really awful Niners team in the game for a good 30, 35 minutes. And you're thinking, I don't know, maybe, maybe you know, a good team, a well-organized team like, say, the Broncos, will actually be more than capable of taking advantage of the opportunities that come their way. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we were talking about it on a, another podcast that there doesn't seem to be any truly dominant team this year. Even the best teams like the Packers, like the Broncos, they've all got flaws on their roster. And, you know, whether it's injuries or whether it's just areas of the team that are weaker, you know, there's no complete looking unit out there anymore or this year anyway and it, it does seem that even the teams that are undefeated at the moment there there is an issue with that side and they have been kind of they have been blowing teams out of the water across the board so it's going to be interesting the longer the season goes on to see if some of these teams that are undefeated so far do lose a few games because of those flaws I guess the, the point about Eddie Lacy actually holds as well for the, the Broncos and their run game Kean has been awful so far this year, they don't know whether or not Hillman is better than Anderson. They can't tell if uh, last year's production from both of those running backs was a complete fluke. Is that a, is that a problem with the running backs? Is that a problem with the fact that their their offensive line is nowhere near as good as it needs to be? Is that also to do with the fact that teams can stack the box because they know Peyton Manning can't throw the ball more than five yards? I think you're, you're probably looking at everything there. I think it's a combination of CJ Anderson not being a great back. I think he's quite a good back. I think he's quite a talented back. Hillman has looked decent as well this year, but I do think Anderson is their best back, but he's still not a Marshawn Lynch type or, oddly enough, a Devonta Freeman type at this stage, where he, he's not going to be able to create a huge amount without good blocking in front of him. And you, you look at a guy like Evan Mattis, who to me looks a lot older than he has. In, well, obviously he's older, but he, he looks older on the field in terms of physically. And the rest of the line is just the general tal- lack of talents there. So And you, you combine that with Peyton Manning not being at his best. I think the whole thing is kind of collapsing in on itself. There isn't really one area that can be fixed. But with these things, sometimes little little improvements in every area can happen and they will turn it around as the season goes on. But we haven't really seen a huge number of signs to suggest that's going to happen. 
Yeah. Um, speaking of Marshawn Lynch, obviously back in form last week against the 49ers. This week um, they're at the Cowboys. And I think if they win this, they've got three home games in a row. So suddenly the, the Seahawks go from two and four to a team who are probably at least going to finish in the wild card um, position. And they'd have a reasonable chance of maybe catching Arizona over the rest of the season here, Sam. So last week it was like, oh, if they lose this game, it's proper crisis. This week it's like, hey, the Seahawks are back. Yeah, well, they, they dropped that game to Carolina as well in Seattle. So I, I think last week was big. It was the kind of, we have to win this game. If they don't win last week, the, the season was pretty much gone. So, And the, the 49ers team last week was so bad that I don't think we really learned anything about the Seahawks. It was just a case of they got the, the must win under the belt against a bad team and, and almost postponed the crisis talk for another week. This, I think, will say a little bit more about them. Um it's almost the same situation because, you know, that Cardinals team is still winning games. They're not going anywhere. And the Seahawks need to be in touch when they play them. So the Cowboys are still desperately just trying to cling on to the, the bottom end of that division until they get their stars back. But they still have a lot of talent and the kind of talent in, in enough um, key places that they can really disrupt the Seahawks, especially up front. Again, we, we said it right at the beginning of the season that the uh, that Seahawks offensive line is going to be a problem for them all season long. And every time they run into teams with quality defensive linemen, it's just going to be highlighted what, a, what an issue it is. Yeah, in that division, the 49ers are at the Rams this week. The Rams suddenly are a really interesting team because um, they've got a transcendent talent at running back um, who everybody is anointing as uh, the next proper superstar back in the game, Kian, after just three games. And it's really hard to argue against it. The guy's been sensational so far. Yeah, well, I was looking at the, the rushing stats today and Gurley has played, is it three games now, three or four games? He's played a lot fewer than everyone else anyway. And he is 11th or 12th in rushing yards. And he's a bit like that pure red horse who's just flying, for, uh, who's just waiting in the back of the race the whole way through. And now he's just taken off and he's overtaking everyone uh, around him. He, he's carrying the Rams offense because Nick Foles has been pretty atrocious lately in the Packers game and last week. And he's just taking... The thing about Gurley that really stands out is he's got all the technical footwork, he's got all the vision, he does all that. But when he gets going, when when players try to tackle him, normally yeah. great running backs who break tackles slow down a little bit as they break the tackle. When players try to tackle Gurley, they just bounce off him and he, he keeps going at the same speed. So that's why he's able to break off 50-yard gains at relative ease. And that's why it's, he's consistently being so productive. Your only real concern with him right now is Jeff Fisher is kind of running him into the ground. Coming off an ACL tear, they don't seem to be scared of giving the ball 20, 30 times a game. In terms of how that affects Nick Foles over the rest of the season, suddenly it opens up opportunities for him, though, and the fact that he's been bad is less important because he's actually going to have far more wide receivers who are open, far more space, far more time in the pocket. Theoretically, you would think that, but that's not always the way it works because they throw a lot of screens, they throw a lot of short passes by design. But Nick Foles really is is in the perfect position for a quarterback, even though he doesn't have a great supporting cast around him. He has Gurley to rely on, and he has a defense that's playing phenomenal. And so he only really needs to be competent for them to win games. And the problem is he hasn't been consistently competent to this point. Yeah. Sam, this is a weird season. The point you're making about uh, there being no standout team, it does mean that any team, even at this point, who are like 2-4 and four, if you're coming off a bye, or even 2-5, and five, you're not actually out of this just yet. All you need to do is catch fire. Absolutely, and there's a few divisions where it's even more ridiculous. If you look at the AFC South, where you know the last few years it's been the Colts because they had Andrew Luck, 
but things have fallen apart for the Colts and for Andrew Luck. And there are now, you know, the Houston Texans and the Jags are two and five, and they're both one game out of the division lead. So I think there's a fantastic scenario at play where one of these absolutely disastrous teams takes that division with like five or six wins and ends up hosting a playoff game against, you know, an actual quality team and just gets obliterated when that happens. It was it was my fun dream that it would be a Ryan Mallet led Houston team, but then they went and cut him. That's what happens when you miss the plane, right? Absolutely, yeah. I think that's fair enough. <laughs> he had traffic, man. You know. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It was the alarm clock was the the last excuse, and this one was the traffic, wasn't that right? Yeah, the a... alarm clock didn't go off. Then I, I got into traffic. You know, it was a nightmare. Um, what do my you hope. make of this? Go on, sorry. I, I just want to say I have a hope that Ryan Mallet somehow ends up with Rex Ryan. <laughs> Not beyond the bounds of possibility, given their difficulties at uh, quarterback at the moment. Um, what do you make of this Rams team, Sam? I, they're almost the same as before. It, it, they have got Todd Gurley, and that does change them. And Jeff Fisher is a guy who wants that workhorse running back. He wants a new Eddie George, because that's realistically the only way he's been successful. If you look back at his career, the, his career record, given sort of the high esteem he's been held in, he is held in is astounding. I mean, it's really not very good at all. And the, the one sort of stretch he had with success was where he ran Eddie George into the ground. And I think it's, it's a legitimate point that Kean makes that the, the, the workload that Todd Gurley is being given now, so soon back from an ACL injury, would terrify me if I'm a Rams fan. He, so he played you know, a, a few snaps in his first game back, and then his second start, they gave him 30 carries. I mean... You're just hanging a sign out there saying, we are going to ride this guy into the ground and he is going to be our offense. And that's fine for as long as he survives, but he's the kind of guy who they look like they're going to give, you know, 380 carries in a season to. And that just it never goes well for the running back long term. Is there a, a part of it where maybe they establish the fact that he can do this over the next couple of games and then they ease back the workload because it's at that point that defenses need to scheme for him? It's possible, but Jeff Fisher strikes me as the guy who just can't help himself when he gets a guy as good as Todd Gurley. And, you know, you can kind of see his point of view. We've got a guy who's playing awesome, and right now he gives us the best chance to win. If we give this guy 30 carries, he's going to be, you know go for 150 yards, and that's far better than anything else we could do with the ball on offense. It's just that long-term, that probably isn't the best plan. Yeah, it's fair enough. Um, Kian, two teams that I wanted to talk to you about were the Falcons and the Cardinals. You seem higher on the Cardinals who've done more to convince you about what they're doing so far this season than the Falcons, despite the fact the Falcons have a slightly better record at the moment. Um, I guess results like last week where the Falcons just about beat the Titans mean that you're sceptical about what's going on there in terms of, okay, there's definite signs of improvement from last year, but they're not quite the real deal just yet. Well, the, it's not only that they just beat the uh, Titans, they beat the Titans with Zach Mettenberger, who was playing terrible football. He couldn't throw the ball down the field at all. He couldn't find any of his receivers. I think my big takeaway from that game was that Matt Ryan didn't really play well, and uh, the run defense looked a little bit suspect, considering the Titans aren't really a good running game. Uh, I, I, I'm concerned about the Falcons in in sense of them being a postseason team, but I think their schedule, with the, the division they're in, they look like a team that's going to be there. They're going to make it as... If not winning the division, they'll be a fifth or sixth seed just because they are winning too many games. Uh, I think you, you've seen the last two weeks against the Saints as well. They they were pretty poor. They just didn't show up. They have uh, they kind of have pockets of talent, but they don't have enough talent to hold way through the team. And 
They were expecting a lot more from Vic Beasley as a, an edge rusher in his first season. He's looked a little bit overwhelmed at times. He, he's not a big player. He probably needs to add a little bit of strength, a little bit of weight. But he probably he should be a good player as his career goes on because he's a really explosive, really talented rusher. It just hasn't really worked out for him just yet. Um, what about the Cardinals? You've been impressed? Yeah, my, my biggest concern with the Cardinals was the front seven. I think they didn't really have edge rushers, and I think their cornerbacks are good. Well, you know, it depends what you call Matthew. I know Sam was giving out about this this week, that he's officially listed as a safety, but he actually plays slot cornerback. But after after Matthew and Peterson, you're kind of looking at their cornerbacks, and they're a little bit suspect, and they don't really have edge rushers that stand out, but they've kind of got a bunch of veterans in Woodley and Freeney and one or two others. But what's really changed for me in ter- for the Cardinals is um, Mike Upati's got healthy, the left left guard, and Chris Johnson has completely turned his career around. And with Upati and John Cooper together, just literally blowing people out of the way for Chris Johnson to run through the middle, they've become a really balanced offense. And that, to me, is the one thing they were missing on offense. They didn't have a running game they really trusted because Andre Ellington, while he's explosive, he wasn't really disciplined, he wasn't really creative to me. He was creative in space, but not between the tackles. And the way Chris Johnson has played has looked like the guy who ran for 2,000 yards rather than the guy who who has struggled over the recent years of his career. Actually, I probably shouldn't say he looked like him because he's a little bit of a different player now because the guy who ran for 2,000 yards was just faster than everybody. This Chris Johnson's kind of really fast, but he's a little bit stronger in his upper body and he's a little bit more decisive with his running style. Yeah, seems a bit cleverer as well. And they've got depth at, at running back as well. Cardinals, are, they are looking at this season, Sam, thinking this is on for us now? Yeah, definitely. Like, like I say, with the, the Seahawks offensive line, and holding them back all through the season. They've dropped games that they, they wouldn't have been expected to drop. The Cardinals, they've done the same thing, to be fair. They've dropped a couple of games that I, I would have thought they would have won, but they have set themselves up in this great position in this division now. And again, Carson Palmer is playing absolutely incredibly at the moment. By far the best we've ever seen him at PFF, and we started grading just after his great run in Cincinnati. So we're not quite sure exactly how high those highs were before his knee got taken out. But this is probably as well as he's ever played in his career um, in an offense that asks more of its quarterback than pretty much any other offense out there. Um, And it's really incredible that he's able to continue to do this week after week. He hasn't had a bad game yet. Yeah, it's been uh, a sensation so far this season, and obviously he's got weapons around him too. So the Cardinals are at the Browns this week. The other standout game this weekend is the Bengals at the Steelers. Uh, the Steelers coming off the back of a very annoying defeat for them against the Kansas City Chiefs, who just aren't really a good team um, at the moment. And obviously with the quarterback difficulties they had, maybe the Steelers are they're just going to chalk that one down. So a big game for Big Ben to come back. The first time we've had uh, Roethlisberger, Martavis Bryant... Uh, Le'Veon Bell and Antonio Brown. Antonio Brown, obviously, yeah, um, together for the first time this season. So expectation is pretty high. But is is Roethlisberger able to come back after a knee injury and not be this massive static target in the in the pocket for? Well, that, yeah, that's the thing. It's going to depend what Roethlisberger is when he comes back. He he was playing as well as anybody before he went down hurt. And, you know, we saw what, uh, what Bryant was able to do when he came back, just went crazy on that defense, took a couple of short passes to the house. Um, and with Brown and, and Le'Veon Bell, they've got arguably the best player at their positions um, in addition to those two guys. So they've got weapons. I think losing their left tackle is another big loss. They're now starting a guy who used to be a wide receiver at Army, um, <laughs> which is 
a fascinating story. The guy played offensive line at Army, then ended up converting to wide receiver at six foot nine, uh, two hundred eighty pounds, something like that. And actually has the athleticism to do it. Was you know pretty good for Army as a, as a wide receiver. Has then bounced around the NFL as a D lineman and is now the, the starting left tackle for the Pittsburgh Steelers. So he's I think going to struggle against anybody of significant quality. And now we might not have a Ben Roethlisberger with a you know a hundred percent knee who can get away from that kind of stuff. So it's a, it's a testing game for him. You know the Steelers with Ben Roethlisberger playing as well as he did is right up there with any of the teams in the AFC. But they're facing the Bengals, who might be the most complete team in football at the moment. So if Roethlisberger is anything less than a hundred percent, it's a tough ask. Yeah, it has the potential to be a bit of a classic this weekend, kid. Uh, I, mean, I don't know if it'll be a classic, but I think it's going to be hugely high scoring because I don't think either of these defenses are built to stop their opposing offenses. Uh, I, we're going to focus on Rottersberger because Rottersberger coming back is obviously huge and it's massive for their whole season. But I think for this game specifically, Le'Veon Bell might actually be more important. Uh, Rottersberger coming back will open the game up a little bit for, for Bell, take away some of the attention he gets. But uh, the Bengals have given up 6.5 yards per carry to Marsh R2. Thomas Rawls and LaShawn McCoy over the last two games. And their run defense in general has looked looked a bit suspect to me because a lot of the yards that Rawls was getting were very easy. And McCoy is coming off a hamstring issue behind not a great offensive line. A good offensive, I mean, ter- offensive line in terms of running the ball, but not one that should be allowing him to, to run as easily as he did, even though his average wasn't as good as Rawls. Uh, I think Bell's probably going to be the key because I think they'll also want to sustain longer drives uh, with, with, with a, a suspect left tackle, as, as Sam says. You, you want to keep... Uh, keep in keep in favourable down and distance situations, so you're not asking Rottenberger to hold onto the ball for four and five seconds while he's looking down the field. Okay, so you would expect him to be actually less explosive and, and try and work the clock on his return just to keep. Uh, well, actually, what would you expect him to do then in terms of how you game plan for that? In turn, as as a stealer, yeah. Well, it's it's not so much that you would change what you're doing, but you're. You're, you're kind of putting a greater focus on running on first down, I think, or, or the shorter draw, although that's something they've done generally. But I think you're, you're going to look at, at trying to manage uh, manage third down, get into, start, get into situations where you're managing third down. So you're not throwing the ball as much on first down. You're not throwing the ball as much on second and eight or second or second and seven. You're just trying to focus your offense around Bell because, look, look, to me, the Cincinnati Bengals offense is too many weapons. You can't stop it. If the Steelers get in a shootout with them, it's going to be difficult. Obviously, that doesn't mean you're going to turn down big plays if big plays are there. But you're not going to come out with four receivers and have them all running vertical routes as much uh, very often. Okay, so you want you want to control the game clock and, and keep the Bengals off the field, pretty much. Um, in terms of Andy Dalton here, right? Uh, the the this guy, you know, the doubts. He's never going to be any good. At what point, when he's in charge of a team like this, Sam, does everybody go? Actually, you know what? He's not bad. Well, now, I mean. This is this is as well as Dalton has ever played for as long, if not longer, than he's ever played at that level. Uh, his thing is always maddening inconsistency. You know, we we coined the the term the Dalton coaster because if you looked at his season grade, it was just up down up down, never with more than two or three games between a, a peak and a trough. Um, but this season it hasn't been, and the Bengals have always taken the idea that if you surrounded him with enough talent, if you gave him enough protection, enough of a running game enough receivers, um, you know, weapons, guys to throw the ball to, he could win. And we may just be seeing the tipping point of that actually coming true. Now that offense is bristling with weapons all over the place. It isn't just A.J. Green and some good pass protection. There's guys everywhere. And we're seeing Andy Dalton play well. You know, the time has come and gone where the wheels normally fall off a season. Um, 
And, you know, it doesn't look like even when he's not on his game, he's going to be bad. It looks like he's just going to kind of drop down to, to this average level. This is definitely one of the best um, weeks so far in terms of the slate of games that we have. Uh, the Jets and the Raiders, a really interesting game as well. Just before we wrap up here, folks, um, the Raiders are an OK team this year, Keen. Turns out their draft classes for the last couple of years have finally started to uh, come good and assert themselves and grow together and knit um, into a fairly cohesive unit. You not mad fan of Carr as a quarterback just yet? Uh, no, it, it's not that sense. I think he has got better since his rookie season, but I think... Our problem generally is in football that we focus too much on the quarterback when things change. And for me, what's really changed in Oakland is the offense around the quarterback more than the quarterback himself. Uh, They're they're producing a huge amount of yak where they're just getting the ball into their receiver's hands and letting them run with it. And you've seen Amari Cooper has been brilliant for that. Michael Crabtree looks a lot better than he did last year in San Francisco. He's healthier, obviously. Latavius Murray playing ahead of Maurice Jones-Drew is a lot better as well. And I think their their offense is kind of dragging their defense a bit. So I wouldn't really call them a good team yet. I still still think they're a very flawed team, but they're heading in the right direction. Yeah, significant strides. This is a big opportunity for them to lay down a bit of a marker this week against the Jets, who I think maybe come out of last week's game against the Patriots in credits as opposed to... The usual kind of, oh, these Jets are flattering to deceive, Sam? That game was interesting because it went almost exactly as everybody thought it would in that, you know, the Jets have this monstrous D-line, the, the interior especially, where they can just line up these big bodies and destroy your run game and push the pocket from the inside. But the Patriots are set up in a way that they don't really care that you're going to do that. They, they're perfectly happy to sacrifice the running game almost entirely and just move the ball, move the chain with these quick passes to the outside, to, to the slot, um, and completely take away that advantage that you have because the Patriots' offensive line is not good, not good at all. But they get rid of the ball quicker than any other team in football. So it was this fascinating sort of game where we thought that the line was, was kind of crazy. The line was too big. It favored the Patriots by too much. Well, we didn't really think there was any chance that the Jets were going to win us. It was They were going to be close, but... The Patriots were just better. Um, but this, the Raiders team is a team where the Jets have similar advantages. They match up in, in similar ways that they did against the Patriots. But the, the Raiders, I don't think, are as well suited to mitigate that as the Patriots are. You know, the, the Jets are likely to really crush the interior of that Oakland offensive line, really make it difficult to run the ball, really push the pocket and, and cause the quarterback some stress and force him to move off his spot a bit. And the Raiders are not going to get the ball rid in two seconds the way the Patriots do every passing play. So this week it might make a, a far bigger impact for them than it did last week. All right, last question, um, Kian. Can Andrew Luck be fixed? <laughs> uh, maybe not this season. I, I think he's he's still probably going to be a great quarterback over the course of his career. But this year it looks like the Colts just need to hit the reset button altogether. All right, folks, we'll leave it there. Great to have you with us as ever. That's uh, Sam Monson at PFF underscore Sam and Kian Fahey at Kian AF. Thanks, lads. Thanks, guys.